Take your Bibles and turn to Judges chapter 17. Judges chapter 17. Thank you for your excellent singing. I appreciate that. Judges chapter 17 is where we'll be this morning. Let me ask you a simple question. Do you know which direction is north? If you think you know which direction is north, point that way. Okay, a bunch of followers. Some of you had no idea. You just pointed because everyone else did. Some of you are still trying to figure it out. Some of you pointed the other way, and I appreciate your honesty. How can you tell which direction is north? Well, there's a number of different ways. If you are not sure where north is, can you decide to choose which direction is north by yourself? Or, or better yet, can we all get together and, and decide, okay, I come in and I say, hey guys, let's do this. Today we're going to call this direction north. Are we able to do that? No. We can't change it. We can't adjust it. What ultimately has the final say in which direction is north? Well, really, it's the compass. It's a reality we're all put in. It's a reality that we all are in the same part of. There is one north. Now, don't get me, you know, there's the, this north, and there's the true north, and there's the magnetic north. But the reality is there's one north. Many things in life are a given. There are truths revealed to us in life. There are truths revealed to us through, through creation. There are truths revealed to us through the Creator. They are re- realities. They are truth. They are, they are what they are, because, not because we make them out to be, but because they are reality from God. They're reality because God designed them to be that way, because God gave them to us. Let me give you some more examples. No man created gravity. Man discovered what already existed. And we can't really change that reality. We don't create science or the principles of science. We discover science. We study it. We analyze it. We test it. We understand it. But we cannot change science. In the same way, God exists. And God exists and He's involved in our lives. He's not a creation of our mind. He's not a creation of our hands. The truth about God has been revealed to us. It's been revealed to us primarily through the Word, but also through creation. And we see that there must be a God that exists. But ultimately, God was revealed to us through uh, the incarnation of Jesus Christ when God came. He's the clearest revelation of who God is. And we're called to discover Him, to know Him, to find Him, to pursue Him. And when we do, we find our meaning and purpose. So with that said, life cannot be complete without God. We cannot live life without a reference point to God. We cannot um, live life unless He is our compass. He is our reference point. We cannot decide our own direction in life We discover the direction that God already has for us. 
And when we ignore it, it's like us calling south, north. We can't do it. Many times, that is exactly what we do. And that is, as we've gone through the study of the book of Judges, that is what the people of Israel did throughout the book of Judges. They lost their direction, and in many cases, they redefined their direction because they stopped following the compass. They stopped following their reference point in life. The author of Judges paints a picture for us over and over again about a group of people, a nation, who did what was right in their own eyes. In fact, we see that phrase over and over again. As we come to the conclusion of the book of Judges, we we step into a portion in the book of Judges, chapter 17, verse 21, that is... Um, is the author's conclusion, and it's, he ties it all together. And really, what chapter 17 through 21 is, is not a chronological um, continuation of the previous chapters. What it is, it's an epilogue, or another way to look at it, it's, it's an appendix. What is an appendix? If you're reading a book, let's say you're reading a book about, uh, about space, and you're reading along, and it's telling you different things, and you get to the end, that's the conclusion. And sometimes what authors will do is they'll throw in an appendix. What is that? An appendix is a, is a clarification. It makes things a little clearer if you miss something along the way. It's not part of the actual book. Most of the time, it's, it's viewed separately. This is an appendix. And this is kind of something that clarifies what's throughout the book. The last judge we looked at was Samson. And, and really, chronologically, Samson is the last event that takes place in the book of Judges. And so I want you to understand that as we go through this. And, and Judge, Samson is another series, of, is, is the conclusion of a series of men who, uh, and women who God used to f- help free his people from slavery and from um, really hard times. But these chapters um, here at the end are different. The rest of the book kind of gives us a bird's eye view of what's taking place. It's kind of, we're looking up and we're seeing, and, and really the only reference point that we have that they're doing wrong is that God tells us in numerous places that they did that which was right in their own eyes. But what does that mean? We don't really usually see. We don't see where it says at the time of you know, Gideon what their sins were. It just says that they're doing that which was right in their own eyes. These last five chapters are the writer here now kind of diving us down. We're no longer at that bird's eye view, but he takes us down to ground level and he shows us what their sin is that they were doing. And what their, I should say, sins, because there's a series of them. And so these last five chapters are, are, are different because it shows us that this evil part of Israel's history and what it looked like. Previously in, God, in Judges, God showed us um, how, or, or, or how he rescued them, but these five chapters shows us what he rescued them from. So I want you to understand that. They're a little bit different. And I believe that's one of the reasons why, if you read through these five chapters, there's actually very little mention of true religion and very little mention of God. Because we're seeing the Israelites at their core. We're seeing them at their worst. We're seeing them without God. We're seeing the people as they have lost their direction and as they have lost the way that God wanted them to go. And so because of that, these five chapters are very bleak. They're very depressing they're very sad. I think it's, that's the reason why you've probably not heard many messages on these five chapters. 
because it's not one we really want to touch on. We see, really, life without God. The conclusion, these five chapters really can be separated into two parts, Judges 17 and 18, and then Judges 19 through 21. And it seems that the author, as he's writing, he wants us to get these two big pictures. And so we look at them. In chapters 17 and 18, what we see is that Israel had lost their sense of who God was. They had lost that sense. They had lost their bearing, so to speak. They had been going through life, but it's as if they were lost in the woods and and they could not figure out which way was north anymore because they had gotten so turned around. In, In the next part, in 19 through 21, they... It seems that Israel had lost their meaning and purpose in life. They don't know what's, what's worth living for. They've kind of, kind of thrown their hands up and said, why are we even here? What are we even doing? Now, I want to wrap up the study of Judges today. So what that means is I'm not going to go through all five chapters. I really do challenge you to take some time and read these chapters on your own. As I said, there isn't a lot of mention of God, but we begin to see unfolded why God had to rescue them so many times. But what I want to do is I just want to focus in on one chapter today. I want to focus in on this, and I want to wrap this up. And next week, I am very excited. Next week, we're going to start a new study as we do our worship in the park. We're going to talk about, we're going to do a series on Behold Our God, and we're going to talk about the, the greatness of God. And it's just, I'm excited about it. We can look at that. But as we wrap this up, I want to focus in on these sins and what these people are doing. So if you will, look at Judges chapter 17. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I will dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand, uh, from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now therefore I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the blacksmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made ephod and a household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite. And he sojourned there, and the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he he journeyed, he came... Uh, to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a, a Levite of Benjamin in Judah. I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, Stay with me, and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. Let's pray. God, I pray that you will help us as we look into this text. 
And then beyond that, as we look into how we can live a life that is um, dependent on you, Lord, help us as Christians not to lose our way, to be serious about our walk with you. We ask that you will work and guide today in everything that I say. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to read to you again one more time, if you will, the, the verse that, that we see in theory all throughout the scripture and, and judges, and that is in verse 6, it says, In those days there was no king of Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In this point, Israel had, had gone to the point where they were so far from God. In this passage, we see them making their own gods, installing their own priests. They're living with, uh, in apostasy and idolatry all rolled into one. And they didn't even know it. The amazing part is I, I feel that many of these Israelites didn't even realize they, lost, they were lost. They, they uh, presumed that God was with them and that life was going on as usual and everything was okay. And the truth is that oftentimes that we don't even realize we're lost. And I don't mean lost in the unsaved way. I mean lost in the sense that we're so far from God's plan that we're, that we're not even aware of it. And that's what happened here. Let's take a few moments and look at this situation. Here we're, we're introduced to a man by the name of Micah. Micah, it seems, has a relationship here with his mom. His mom was probably very rich. It says that she had uh, 1,100 uh, pieces of silver, and we actually saw that same number last week. That's, that's quite a bit of money. And so she probably was a wealthy woman. And here we see that in this passage it tells us that um, someone stole that much money, which means she probably had more money than that. But someone stole from her 1,100 pieces of silver, I'm sure it was something that bothered her. How do we know that? Because it tells us in this passage that she cursed the thief. Well, I'm not sure what that means exactly, but she placed some kind of curse and some kind of statement in which she was saying, you know, that it was throwing um, hardship upon this person because of what they did. This curse was obviously severe enough that it scared the thief, which was her son, into confessing. He confessed what he did, and he came to her and he said, Mom, it was me. I'm the one who took the money. I'm the one who you threw the curse upon. Now, first note, what I find is interesting is, um, you know, if, if you're a parent and your son comes to you or your daughter comes to you and says, Hey, Mom, that, that you know, loads of money that was stolen from you, that was me. Um, I, I think many of you, your first response would not be her first response. Her first response was what? It wasn't a reprimand. It wasn't a, how dare you. It wasn't a, you know, wait till dad gets home. It wasn't a, uh, we need to go see the priest and take care of this. No, what was her first response? Son, the Lord bless you. Now, it's kind of interesting to see. She didn't correct him. She didn't set things right. And then what does she do? It tells us in this passage, then she takes this money and she's so excited that she says, uh, I'm so excited that my money's back that what am I going to do? I'm going to dedicate this. I'm going to consecrate this silver to the Lord. So how does she do that? How does she dedicate it to the Lord? Well, look at the passage there and see what it says. She says, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son. And, and then what does she say? To make a carved image. Isn't that amazing? That what does she do? She does that which is so displeasing to God. As an Israelite, she would have been taught and she would have known, even in a time when they were, they were not living for God, they still would have known the Ten Commandments. 
They still would have known from their youth that the understanding that the Bible says that thou shalt not make any graven image. And yet, her desire to consecrate or to dedicate this silver to God is by making an image. And I think that defines a lot of what was happening here. In one breath, she consecrates to God and makes an idol at the same time. She pays lip service to God and sins against the God at the same time. This is very outrageous, but it's very true. I think that many times we fall prey to the same thing. And yet, here's the, here's the amazing part about that. She was completely oblivious that she was doing anything wrong. She was a completely oblivious that there was a problem. And it goes a step further. Look in verse 5. And the man Micah, so she has this, these images made and she gives them to Micah. And what does Micah do? It says the man Micah had a shrine and an ephod and household gods. So her son then takes these things and, she, and he places them in a shrine to worship God? No, to worship these items. Again, so far from God. And then he goes a step further. Notice what he does at the end of verse 5. It says, and ordained one of his sons who became priests. He installed one of his sons as a priest. He ordained them. And this is clearly against God's command because the Bible tells, tells the Israelites specifically, first of all, they, he was not to do, have anything to do with ordinating, ordaining a priest. But secondly, priests were to only be from the tribe of, of, of Levi. They were to be Levites. And yet again, he did his own thing. And this isn't the end of the messy situation that we see them in. Notice what happens next. In verse 7 it says, A young man of Bethlehem came and he, and, he, and he traveled to them. Now if we look in chapter 18, if you look in chapter 18 and verse 30, it tells us who this young man is. His name is Jonathan. And so this young man, Jonathan, travels there and he's, it says there he's from Bethlehem and he left Bethlehem in search of another place. There's some odd things about this that you have to understand. First of all, um, he's a Levite. You say, well, what's the significance of that? Well, the Levites, by God, were, were, were different than the other tribes. As, as they came into the promised land, God gave each tribe and said to each tribe, I want to give you a portion of land, and, and this portion is your land to dwell. But the Levites did not get a section of land. If you look at a map in your Bible, you'll see that the Levites are not listed among those who got a section of lamb, land. So where were they to live? The Bible told the Levites that they were to live in certain cities, and those were the cities that were supposed to be the hubs of worship, and, and they were to be the place where they were used by God in those cities. And, and, and there were 48 cities listed in the law of where they were to live, and Bethlehem was not one of them. So this young man is, is doing his own thing, and then it says he leaves Bethlehem. Well, why does he leave Bethlehem? What was his reason for doing that? He left Bethlehem in search of a place to live. In other words, in search of a place that he could do his uh, Levite thing and survive. A better way to put that here is that he had now become a priest for hire. He was simply traveling around looking for a place that he could make a living. None of this was pleasing to God. None of this was the way God wanted them. They had gotten to the point where they were no longer worshiping God the way that they were supposed to. Now this might not mean a lot to you because you didn't live in the time of the law, but this for them was a big problem. 
yet they thought they were okay. How do we know that? We continue on and we see, if you were to read chapter 18, I actually look there, chapter 18, look at verse 18, and we're not going to read chapter 18, but in chapter 18, these Danites come in and they start creating a problem and, uh, with, with Micah. Notice, if you will, in chapter 18 and verse 18, and when they went into Micah's house and took the carved image and the ephod and the household gods and the metal image, the priest, who's this priest, the one that we just talked about, Jonathan, Jonathan said to them, what are you doing? And they said to him, keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or be a priest to the tribe and a clan of Israel? And the priest's heart was glad and he took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. Now you see here, that it, just, it just continues. In this passage we see that they, uh, they come and they, they take everything from and the priest confronts them. Why are you taking it? This is his stuff. And they said, well, because, you know, you should come with us. Keep your mouth closed and come with us. And he said, sure, I'll do that. So we understand this priest didn't have a lot of integrity. So back to our story. He comes in and he comes to uh, Micah's house. And Micah says, what are you doing? And he says to him, well, I came from uh, Bethlehem and I'm trying to find a place to live. In other words, I'm trying to find a job. And Micah says to him, okay. Come with me and stay with us. And you can be our priest. He offers him a wage. You see there he says 10 pieces of silver, a suit of clothes, and, and your living. In other words, we'll, we'll provide your needs if you'll do this. And then what, what's interesting is you continue down in verse 13. Look at, look at Micah's response to all this. I mean, we have just looked at um, time and time again how they violated God's law. And yet, what was Micah's response? Verse 13, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. He is so diluted to actually think that God will bless him because of this. He's so diluted to think that because he has this Levite living in his house that somehow he's doing the right thing. And he has become so comfortable with wrongs that he has made the wrongs right. And I think that many times that's what we do. We have somehow made wrongs to be right. And here we see that with Micah. Everything that we've read here so far is so blatantly wrong in every possible way, and yet it happened. And not only did it happen, but it was commonplace for Israel at this time because, what does it say in verse 6? Every man did what, what was right in his own eyes. And here's Micah, and somehow he had placed himself in a position where he thought he could not only make a carved image and worship the carved image, but assign a priest to be his own priest. And he had completely turned his back on God. And it happened because the people had lost their direction in life. They were confused. They didn't know right from wrong. Because every time we try to do life without God, we're going to be lost. And we can justify it, and we can think it's okay, but we can't. We can't live like that. Here, here's the reality. Creation cannot do what it likes. 
You know, we cannot, creation, you look out in the world around us, and the Bible tells us that we learn a lot from God by looking at creation, and we look at creation itself, and, you know, you walk into your backyard, and you walk up to a tree, and your tree does what it does because it follows the laws of creation. It doesn't one day say, you know, I'm not really liking this, and so it pulls up its roots and walk away. You know, you can see that in fantasies and stories, but that doesn't happen. Why? Because it follows the laws of creation. But man was created by God to follow the spiritual laws that God has set for him. And that's the problem in, in the world so often today is there's no absolute truth. There's no absolute right and wrong. We decide what is good. We decide what is right and we decide what is fitting and that is not pleasing to God. And when we do that, we've lost our way. You know, today, it's, you, you can even decide who God is the shape that you want God to be, and then worship that God. That's so common today. How many times have you interacted with someone, and I know I have, you interact with someone and and, and they begin to say, well, this is what I think, and, and and I stop, and they claim to be Christians, and I stop and say, where in the world did you get that? What God is it that you're worshiping? Because it's not the God of the Bible. It's a God that you've molded into your head to make Him what you want Him to be. But I want you to notice a passage in Acts, and I hope that you can read that. It's kind of small. If you can't, turn to Acts chapter 17 and verse 24. But um, if you will notice uh, what it says in that passage, this passage is, is an incredible passage to look at who God is. It says this, The God who made the world and everything in it does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. We sometimes think, God, uh, you need me. And God says, no, it's not the case. It goes on, he says, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Not only that, we understand that about God. God made all things and he placed us on earth, but notice what it says next. Having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. Not only does God come down and, and He places us on earth, but it says in this passage, God has already determined your days. He's already determined where you're going to live. He's already set your path. And yet, so often we say, I'm going to go my own way. It goes on and it says, notice what it says next, that... They should seek God. One of, the thing, one of the greatest reasons God placed us on earth and gave us our allotted period of time and set our boundaries of our dwelling is so that we can seek God. And notice what it says next, and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. God's desire for us is this, that he places us on earth to pursue him. And yet the people of Israel did what was right in their own eyes. And by doing that, they are breaking the natural course of spiritual um, direction that God wants us to go. I asked you a question earlier, and I said, where is north? And most of you got it pretty close. Uh, there's, I don't have a compass, but you can get an app on your phone that has a compass. And so I came in here last night to see exactly which way north is, and it's actually a little bit more this way towards the corner. That, is, that direction is north. 
Now, it's not something I determined. It's something that is. There is only one north, just like there is only one true God. And he not only points us to the direction he wants us to go, but he himself is that direction. And he says in this passage in Acts, he says, My desire is this, I place you on the earth and give you your allotted times so that you will do everything in your power to pursue me and come towards me. Yet the people of Israel did their own thing. They constantly ignored the direction God wanted them to go. They constantly turned back from that. Jesus came, and when Jesus came to the earth, he, he took it a step further, and he said, uh, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man goes the direction of the Father but by me. There is no other way. And yet, the people of Israel constantly were losing the reference point of going to God. We need to come to the point where we say, I'm not going to go the way I like. I'm going to go what is right, and I'm going to seek God, and I'm going to do what he wants me to do, and I'm going to stay on the course. Now, in the next few minutes, I want to close with actually turning to a different passage. So if you will, take your Bibles and turn to Proverbs chapter 3. In our outline, if you're keeping notes, you're saying you haven't said anything on the outline yet. I know. The outline comes from this passage. How? Do we stay on the right course? How do we go the direction God wants us to go? How do we stay on the right path? I believe if Israel would have followed this passage, then it would not have been said about them they did what was right in their own eyes. And that passage is Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, where it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. How do you go in the right direction? How do you go, live in such a way where you're not living right in your own eyes, but living right in the eyes of God? What does that look like? Well, I believe this passage tells us, so I want to take a few moments and look at that. First of all, living right in the eyes of God means trusting God completely. The Bible tells us that in order to make our paths of life straight, that we first must trust in God with all our heart. What does it mean to trust? Well, first of all, let me give you a definition of trust. Trust is this, assured reliance on the character, ability, strength, or truth of someone or something in which our confidence is placed. And there's trust in a number of different ways. It might be that you trusted the seat you sat in. It might be that you trusted in, 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 your, uh, in your shower this morning that it was going to be warm or hot or cold, whatever you choose. Trust is in a number of different ways. When I, when I worked at camp, we used to do something that's very common in camp ministry. It was called a trust fall. Um, and a trust fall was simply this. Here's a picture you can see of some kids doing a trust fall. A trust fall is where you would come to the edge of something. Usually it was a platform. Where I worked at a camp, we had a rock that was the perfect size. And usually it's about four or five, five feet tall. And the idea was you would turn your back to, your, to the rest of your group. You would stiffen up your body and you would fall back with the expectation that they would do what? Catch you. And I remember we would do this at camp every week and there was kids that would come to the edge and they would be terrified. And they would sit there and they would be shaking and they would say, I can't do this, I can't do this. And as a counselor, our job was to try to get them to understand what trust meant. And so we would say, okay, you have to stiffen up your body. If you don't stiffen up your body, <coughs> excuse me, what happens is, is when you start falling, if you're not stiff, you'll bend your knees, you'll bend your arms and you become like a ball and it's really hard to catch a ball like that. But if you stay stiff, it's easier to catch. 
And so inevitably, there would be kids who would fall, and I always placed myself in a place where if they fell, I was the one actually catching them. But uh, we would do that. I remember one particular time where we were on a leadership trip, and we were going somewhere, and, and we came upon a rock that was about 15 feet tall, and someone said, why don't we do a trust fall off that? There was a couple that did. I was not one of them. But trust means, it, it, the idea is it's, it's, it's a reliance on, in this particular case, it's reliance on the muscles of those people who are there that you have confidence in that says I'm going to fall. Well, trust in God, it goes beyond just that I'm trusting God's muscles. But it's I'm trusting in God in every aspect of life. And I'm trusting in every aspect of God. Psalms 37 says this, Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. Trust means that I I believe in the promises of God. I trust that God will never leave me nor forsake me. I trust that God will do His best for me. I trust that God always knows what's best for me in my life, in every situation, and so I'm going to follow it. But he goes on in, in Proverbs chapter 3, he says not only trust, it doesn't say trust alone, it says trust with all your heart. And what is the idea there? All of your heart, your heart in the Bible is always a representation of your entire being. And it means that we trust God with everything and for everything and through everything. It means that we trust God with our lives, we trust God with our finances, we trust God with our health, we trust God with our loved ones. Basically there is nothing that we hold back from God. But too many Christians live half-hearted faith. We trust God for our salvation because that's what we have to do. And maybe we trust God for a few other things, but there are certain areas in our life that pop in our, uh, in our life that we think are too big. And we worry that if we trust in God, they're not going to turn out well. When what we need to do is trust in God because God is big enough. I mean, contemplate that for a moment. The same God that did the impossible of offering his perfect son as your only solution for sin. That same God can be trusted to do any other big thing in your life. So trust him completely. Trusting God with your whole heart means that you will do an overhaul of the way that you think when it comes to every area of your life because oftentimes we will trust friends, won't we? We'll trust family. You'll trust your doctor. You'll trust your accountant. You'll trust uh, so many different people. But the reality is your friends will fail you and violate your trust. Your family will violate your trust. Your pastor will violate your trust. Unfortunately, even your spouse at times will violate your trust, but the, problem, the promise of God is that even in difficult situations, even when it doesn't make sense, and even when it hurts, God is trustworthy. And when you're going through whatever you are going through, guess what? The only one that's 100% trustworthy is God. For Israel, they lost sight of that. And they changed their direction and went a different way. And I want to ask you, are you trusting in God for everything? This past week, many of you experienced the eclipse. And some of you maybe made a bigger deal out of it than others. Uh, Yesterday, I had an opportunity to go to lunch with one of our missionaries, Tim Fink. He was in town yesterday, and he told me that 
Um, uh, the day of the eclipse, he was down in South Carolina, which was where it was 100%. And he said it was, uh, you know, he said it was unbelievable to see. What was interesting is he told me that they, they, he had to leave as soon as it was done, and so um, they checked and they said it was where he was at was supposed to happen at 2.38, and it was supposed to be done by 2.40. And he said by 2.41 he was in his car leaving. And uh, but I, when, I was, when he was telling me that, what was interesting was I thought, you know, you think about this for a moment. The patterns of the earth, the pattern of the moon, the location of the sun, how, how is it possible that they could pinpoint the exact moment when that was going to take place? And, and it revealed something to me as I was thinking about it, that the preciseness of the laws of nature are so consistent that they can be trusted that scientists are are smart enough to figure out the exact moment when that would take place because nature is so consistent and the god who made nature made this consistent nature that we can pinpoint that exact moment is the same god that says trust trust in me if I, can, if I can make nature in such a way that you can figure out the exact moment something is, that the sun and the moon will cross paths, how is it that you can't trust me enough to get you through your trial? Trust. The second thing we want to look at here is living right in the eyes of God means relying on wisdom from God. Notice, if you will, in that passage in verse 5, it says there, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and then it says, and do not lean on your own understanding. Those two go hand in hand. He says, trust in God, and in order to do that, you can't trust in yourself. But we find in this statement a very sad truth, and that is that oftentimes we put our trust in God, but we put our trust mostly in ourselves. And we, we base that on our limited understanding of situations and, peoples and people and motives and intentions. And we put our trust in, we lean on our own understanding. What does that word lean mean? That word lean is, gives us the idea of putting your full weight on something. We put our full weight, we put our full weight on our understanding. What is understanding? Understanding is our mental grasp of things. And God is calling us uh, to put aside what we know in our own mental grasp and, and trust in Him. And not lean on our own understanding. I think though, the older that we get sometimes, that's, that's what we do. Well, I've, I've had this experience before and so I think I can get through it. I've gone through this type of trial before, so I'm going to trust in what I've done before to get me through this. And we lean on our own understanding. I think of a way to illustrate that is this. Um, there's a rear view mirror. And uh, in this mirror, what, what do you see on the bottom there? It says, objects in mirror are closer than they appear. Now, you're driving around the road, and you've done this before. You're driving down the road, and you, and you are um, looking in your rearview mirror, and you see a vehicle behind you, and you think, oh, they look a good distance away. And then you glance down, and you see the thing that says, objects in the mirror are closer than they appear. And we get insight from the mirror, but we trust the caption below, don't we? 
We, we look at the mirror to kind of give us a basic understanding, but the caption below is what we have to follow. In the same way, we can indeed get insight from life. We can indeed look and say, you know, I've experienced this in the past, and I know what I should do, and I know that uh, uh, I've seen this before, but reality is, is we have to trust the caption below. And what is the caption below? The caption below is what, what God says when he says this in Isaiah 55, when he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And here's what God is saying. You may look in that mirror, and you may think you know. You may think you have insight into this. But trust the caption. The caption is this. God is saying, you know what? I have ways that you don't know of. I have plans that you can't even begin to understand. So it's not enough to look and think we have our own understanding. Hey, I can do this. We have to say, lean on God's understanding that he knows more than us. And today, you, when you are faced with difficult, to under, um, difficult decisions and difficult circumstances, where do you turn first? And here's a question that may be hard for some of you. Do you even consult God? Or do you simply lean on your own understanding in the situation? How's leaning on your own understanding got you so far? Today, we have been given the command to search the Scriptures, to pray, to seek God's understanding on something. Even in our story today, Micah, in the story, thought he was wise enough to pick his own priest and do his own thing. But he was not. And neither are you and neither am I. And that's why in this passage, Solomon says to a trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. And then the third one, living right in the eyes of God means recognizing God's authority in everything. Proverbs 3, 6 goes on, he says this, in all your ways, in everything you do, acknowledge him and then he will make straight your path. The word acknowledge in this passage um, means to recognize the authority of God. In everything that you do, in every uh, aspect of life, that we recognize the authority of God. So what is being said is we are to recognize God in every single situation of life when we step in. I've had the opportunity and the privilege to be um, many times with some of you in the hospital. And I've had the privilege of being with some of you when you, you're about to go into surgery, some of you after surgery. I've been with families when a loved one is, is moments or days away from passing. And I've seen those situations enough where sometimes you'll have the person who comes in and, and when a person is in the hospital and maybe they're on life support and the hospital recognize one single person to make the decision for the sick person, don't they? They say this one single person has the ability to do it. This person has full authority over every decision that is make, made about this sick person. In a similar sense, we surrender any perceived authority we have over to God. And that is, God becomes our caregiver. God becomes our sole decision maker of our lives. Because we see in Scripture, the Bible says that we are desperately wicked. We're sick. We can't make decisions for ourselves. We need someone who can see clearly enough to make those decisions for us. And who is that? That's God. And so Solomon here says, lean not on your own understanding, but he says, in all your ways, give him the authority to make the decision. 
Give him the decision-making power. Like Micah in this story, and like uh, his mom, we say to God oftentimes, I want you in my life, but I also want my idols too. I want you in my life, but I want to choose when and where and how I worship you. And I don't want you to decide that, but acknowledging him and everything is saying, I'm going to give you, God, everything. I want to close with this illustration. Um, When I was in uh, college, um, I was home for a summer, and I had an opportunity to go for, um, to climb a mountain. This isn't from, this isn't a picture I took, so it was a different time of year, but it was the best one I could find. This is Mount Washington. This is out in New Hampshire. Um, Mount Washington is the tallest mountain east of the Mississippi. Mount Washington always ha- also has a very distinct thing about it, and that is Mount Washington is the most diverse weather in the world. Um, the weather, on, for whatever reason, it's the way the mountains sit around it, it's the way the, the peak is, um, that the, the weather conditions on Mount Washington can change literally in an instant. And so it makes it a very unique mountain. Off the top of Mount Washington is a weather station because of that fact, and, and, and they're up there um, uh, 365 days a year tracking the weather uh, up on that spot. Well, uh, the summer, um, I think it was before my, I'm, I'm not even sure, before my junior year, I believe, uh, me and two friends decided to climb Mount Washington. So we went. It was August, and um, the, the weather was just absolutely gorgeous. I mean, it was about 80, 85 degrees down at the base of the mountain, and we, we had shorts and T-shirts on, and we, were, we, we took with us supplies because we knew it was going to be a h- tough climb, and we decided, uh, you know, we were strong, tough college kids. We were going to take the... Po- toughest possible route we could take. There was many routes that go up the mountain, and so we decided to take this one particular route, and so we traveled, and it was gorgeous. I mean, at the bottom, there was, there was mountain streams, and there was trees, and then, as you see in that picture, about where the snow is, about where the trees stop, uh, when we were there, it was um, earlier than this, so there wasn't snow at the top, but um, as we began going, uh, it was just beautiful. We came to this one part, and I remember this particular part. I found this picture, and I, I remember it. This particular part where it's, it's kind of steep, and you're actually doing hand-over-hand climbing, and, and uh, you're going up, and it was just gorgeous. The waterfall was just as you see it there. It was coming down, and just beautiful. We got to about the top of this part, and we stopped and said, this is a good place to have lunch. The views were spectacular. So we sat down and we had lunch, and, and so because of the way we were sitting, the, the mountain itself was behind us, and, and uh, so we did not know what was taking place behind us. And as we were sitting there, and we finished our eating, we turned around, and behind us was just this huge cloud that had crept in. And so we began, we said, we better get going. We're, we're halfway up the mountain. We better get going. And, and, and so we, we went over the crest of the mountain there. And as we went over the crest, suddenly we realized that we were buried in a cloud. The snow started and, and uh, it, it, was, it was heavy and it was, it was um, very um, um, coming down and we could hardly see. The, the fog was dense and we couldn't see hardly in front of us at all. We thought, how are we going to do this? Well, on Mount Washington, in many mountains, they have what are called um, carins. And these are um, piles of rock that they make. What's the purpose of these? These are purpose for exactly the situation we're talking about. 
These are all along the way so that when you get to them, you know that if you can get to the next one and you can get to the next one, you'll get to the top. And so it was so dense that day that we would, the three of us would stand at one of these piles of rock and, and uh, one would start walking until he could see the next pile of rocks and then he would tell us, uh, talk to us, and we would do our best to follow his voice until we got to him. And then we made our way slow going up that mountain. And it reminds me of this statement, is that many times in life, what we want is this. We want God to just lay out life for us and to show us, hey, this is exactly where you're going to go. But God doesn't always do that. Sometimes God says this, I'm only going to give you the next few steps and you follow me and if you will trust in me, then we will make our way. Because if along the way we said, you know what, I see the next pile of rocks, but... I don't really trust it. I don't really think that's the way I want to go, and so I'm going to go this way. We would have ended up way off track and, in, and really in a lot of trouble. But because we were willing to do that, we made our way up to the top. In your life, God has placed you in life and has given you the opportunity to serve him. And the question is, is this. Do you want to make the paths of your life straight or are you going your own way? Are you letting God lead you? Are you doing what is right in your own eyes, in your own decisions? I challenge you to think about that. Are you like the people of Israel? Or are you living the, the, the words of Solomon where you're trusting, you're leaning, and you're acknowledging God? Let's pray. God, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for the illustration that we have of um, in the book of Judges of this, of this family who just did their own thing. And Lord, we know from that passage that this was a pattern of, of all the nation of Israel. And Lord, because of that, they continued to find themselves in bad situations and they continued to find themselves hurting. And Lord, I, I pray that you will help us not to make the same mistakes, but instead, Lord, help us to learn to trust in you. To lean not on our own understanding, but to lean on uh, you in everything we do and to acknowledge you as the sole authority in our life. And Lord, I pray that you'll help us then to follow you. We ask that you work and guide, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.